0: Number two, some of us were alive at this time. President Reagan introduced in 1986 a, an anti-drug abuse act, and Nancy Reagan, his wife, of course, came up with the famous, just say no to drugs. And of course, there are a lot of public service announcements in the 1980s saying, just say no to drugs, and the amount of money spent on that campaign was just billion, some pocket change, I guess. Well, in 1983, it was introduced into the school systems in a program that was called D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education. But by 1994, a study funded by the Department of Justice revealed that partaking in D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education, led to only um, short-term reductions in the use of tobacco. It had no impact on the use of alcohol or marijuana. All it did was tell kids, quote, lots and lots of popular kids are doing drugs. You're not. Perhaps you should check them out. And that's exactly what it did. Drug use went up, not down. And tobacco. This one is entitled, Why Anti-Smoking Campaigns Fail by Richard Becker. The four-decade-long barrage of anti-smoking campaigns is no longer effective. The reason seems pretty clear. Most anti-smoking campaigns do not target smokers. They target non-smokers in an attempt to vilify people who smoke. And that's fine as long as policymakers and nonprofit organizations want to spend millions or more on ineffective advertising campaigns or pass anti-smoking legislation and sin taxes to make themselves look like heroes. There is psychological evidence that suggests that negative messages produce negative results. It doesn't work. We know know that prohibition did not work. We know that. It was well-intentioned. They saw the families were disintegrating. Many, many people's lives were absolutely ruined. Crime was a problem because of it. But when they tried to prohibit it by law, it absolutely failed. The war on drugs, as we know, look at the world we live in today. was an absolute failure. Even though the evidence is clear that people who use drugs, are, it has a very bad effect on their lives. But that didn't change it. And they found that anti-smoking ads actually increase smoking, which is not what they're intended to do. So here's the question, why? Why why do sincere, well-intentioned, financially-backed, slickly-packaged attempts to stop obvious social ills fail so spectacularly? Why? Why? And these are just a few examples of it. One I remember from myself is we used to live in, in Houston, Texas, and there in Galveston, there was uh, this, this hotel built out on the pier, and it's called the Flagship Hotel. And, they had all, and it was on a pier, and so you, you could see right into the water. And one of the things that people were doing is they were fishing out of their windows on their balconies. But as they threw their, their tackle out, it would swing back and it was breaking the windows on the, um, uh, on the floor where the dining room was, on the first floor. So they put up signs, no fishing from your balcony. And of course, it went way up. They were breaking every window. So finally, they took the signs down and it stopped. Why? Why? Why is it? And I, I didn't do it, but I'll bet you anything, if I had put a table right there as you walked into the worship center this morning and I put a sign on this table, don't touch this table, you'd have touched it. Why? If I put a table there with no sign on it, none of you would have had any interest in touching it at all. But if I put a sign, you'd have touched it. Why? Why are we like this as people? And we could go on endlessly with the examples. Why is it that laws tend to do oftentimes the exact opposite of what we think they're intended to do? Why? That's our subject today. And it's a passage of Scripture we're going to look at, Romans chapters three, in fact, chapter seven, rather verses 13 to 25, which is considered one of the most controversial passages in the book of Romans. And you'll see why it's very controversial. It's, it's, a, it's a passage of Scripture that talks about, what, as I titled it, the war within. Others have called it the civil war that rages inside the human soul. Why And it's going to try to deal with the question, why does law not work? And, of course, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks about law, he's not speaking about the laws of the United States of America with regard to prohibition or smoking or anything like that. He's speaking about the Old Testament law. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul is Jewish. And he, from the time he was a child, and remember, he was a very, very strict Jew, and, in fact, he was a rabbi, and he was educated by the top rabbi in the world, Gamaliel. He was the valedictorian. He would have known every single one of the 613 laws in the Old Testament. He would have known them all. Every rabbi of that stature had to do so. And he tried desperately because he was an observant Jew to follow these laws. But he found that not only could he not follow these laws, these laws actually had an opposite effect. They did not decrease sin. They increased it. And so the obvious question then is, is law evil? Should you get rid of all laws? Will that solve the problem? Well, of course, we know it won't. So what is the purpose of the law? Now, the section we're in in Romans now is the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with the subject of, if you want to put it in normal terms, human improvement. The Bible calls that sanctification. How do we grow as Christians? And one of the things that we're going to have to deal with as Christians to grow is there will be a war that rages inside your body, inside your brain. That's going to be tough to fight, but it's part of life. And the Apostle Paul is now in this chapter going to describe that war. So if you have a Bible, Would you please turn to Romans chapter 7? And we're going to put the words of scripture on there. And all I'm going to do this morning is try to address four questions. The first question, which is the most controversial of all, is who is Paul talking about or writing about? Is he, who's he writing about? It's a very important question. You'll see. The second question is, what is the root conflict or the root cause of this war within us? What's going on? why do we have this problem? Third, how does this struggle play out in one's life? What does it look like? And lastly, what does it take to have victory? Is there any hope? And of course, the answer will be yes. Let's start with the first question. Question number one is, who is Paul writing about in Romans chapter 7? That's a very important question. Because he's going to describe a person, he's going to, in fact, he's going to describe himself, who is having a struggle with knowing what is right to do, but not doing it. Wanting to do what is right in his eyes, but not being able to do it. Even delighting to do what is right, but not finding himself doing it. And so he's wondering what's wrong with me? so who is he talking about there are three suggestions the first suggestion is that the apostle paul is talking about himself before he was a christian while he was a jewish rabbi and while he was a jewish rabbi the the, the basic mindset was that you are jewish that means you're part of the chosen people of god you bear on your body at least the males did circumcision which was the mark of the covenant of god and, it is, and you are part of the sacrificial system, which has something to do with atoning for your sins. But your goal in life is to follow the law of God. And he tried to do so very well, very, very hard. He gave himself to it, but he found that he couldn't pull it off. And by the way, in other books of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, if I can't pull it off, you can't because I'm way more disciplined than you are. I'm way smarter than you are. If I can't pull it off, I promise you, you can't either. Because I have a far better pedigree and a far better background, a far more better education than any of you do. But I couldn't do it. So people think Paul is talking about himself before he became a Christian, wrestling with trying to obey the Mosaic law and finding that he couldn't do it. That's the first suggestion. The second suggestion is that the Apostle Paul is talking about a person who who maybe is a Christian, maybe an immature Christian, or what we might call a carnal Christian. This is a person who is a Christian, someone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, which means they they believe that their sins have been paid for in full, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But just because Jesus died for the, for the, on the cross for their sins, the penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin is still raging inside their mind. And they cannot get a handle on sin. So this is an immature person who has not yet learned how to grow as a Christian. Some people say they, they live in Romans 7, but they have never made it to Romans 8. And that's where we're coming next, year, next week, Lord willing. It's an immature person. And that's why they're having troubles. The third suggestion is that this is not Paul before he was a Christian. This is not even an immature Christian. This is the normal Christian. This is us. This, is, this passage is talking about the struggles that all of us have as human beings with sin. Now, commentators and people throughout all of history, going back to the time of Jesus, just after Jesus, have written on this passage, and guess what? They've taken all three views, and there is no consensus whatsoever on which one is correct. And so I'll give you my view. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I kind of think, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, as there are people, scholars, far wiser than I am, far more skilled in the Bible than I could ever be, who take a different view, and that's fine. When I look at this passage, unfortunately, I see myself. I don't like that. I'd rather look at this passage and say, hey, man, I never struggle with sin. Of course, you people don't. I do, but you don't. And that's wonderful that you don't have to struggle with sin. But I think we all do. Because in truth, we're all kind of immature Christians. (laughs) None of us are in heaven yet. And sin is very real. Do you know why it's real? Because we happen to have this thing called a body. Now, if you could get rid of your body, as Plato and the other uh, uh, Aristotelian philosophers thought, you'd you'd have it free. Because remember, they said the body is the prison of the soul. But I don't believe the body is the prison of the soul. I believe the body is a gift from God. But this body has all kinds of wants, needs, desires that I like to satiate. And so, sometimes those things come into conflict with what God wants from us. And a battle rages. So whether whatever which one of these is true, let's not worry about that. Let's just assume that it's true of you and of me. And let's look and see what the Apostle Paul said. So now he's going to try, first of all, to look at the root cause of the conflict within. And so these are verses, this is chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good The good, we know from the previous section, is the law of Moses. Did that which is good then become death to me? So in other words, I guess the way you could say it, um, how could that which is good, the law of Moses, become death to me? Is the law the problem? So in other words, in the United States, with regard to prohibition and with regard to drug use and tobacco use, Is the answer to get rid of all the laws? Is that the answer? Or is the answer, get rid of the law? The beauty of getting rid of the law, you never feel any guilt because you didn't break anything. It's like if you got rid of all the speed limits on all of the highways, you could drive as fast as you want and you'd never break the law because there is no law. So is the problem the law? No, no, by no means. Nevertheless, In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So the Apostle Paul is saying that um, the struggle with sin cannot be blamed on the law because fundamentally the law is good, nor can the law achieve the kind of righteousness that God seeks. Because the law reveals our sin. The law stimulates our sin. The law produces death. The law is not the answer. So what is the answer? What's wrong with me? There's sin inside of me. That's the cause. In fact, the sin in me must be really bad because the law... Brings out the sinfulness of my heart. Remember, I, um, I I read to you at the beginning about this uh the, the, about the anti-tobacco um um legislation and all those um, um advertisements. This man who wrote the article "Why Anti-Smoking Campaigns Failed, his name is Richard Becker. He said this. There is psychological evidence that suggests that negative messages produce negative results. It's not about being defiant to authority. He said, it is about being defiant to authority, demonstrating a foolhardy sense of immortality, tempting fate by flirting with something potentially addictive, and being accepted by peers and adults. There is something going on the question must be asked, why do the negative campaigns not work? Well, they don't work because there's something going on inside of my heart. And did you see in the passage, it said, what is it? It's called sin. But sin, when we think of sin, we think of sin as the things we do wrong. That's not what sin is. That's part of it. But sin is much deeper, much broader than that. This is C.S. Lewis. He said this, Nothing gives one such a spuriously good conscience as keeping a list of rules, even if there's a total absence of all real charity. There's something about rules and keeping the rules that makes you feel really good about yourself, even when you're not. Because we have all kinds of, I've seen pictures of Adolf Hitler, who was very kind to children. What do you call that? As he killed six million Jews. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't he didn't like children. He did, apparently, treated them nicely. Maybe German children, but no one else. But still, what is, what is it? There's something about laws that makes us feel really good if we if we keep them, and we really look down our nose at those who do not. But the trouble is that's not good. Because they don't work for us and they don't work for anyone else. So, what does this look like? What what does the war within look like? And so we're going to see now how does this struggle play out? Listen to verses 14 and following. We know that the law is spiritual. That is, the Mosaic law is spiritual, it's from God, it's good. But me, I'm unspiritual sold as a slave to sin. And because of that line, some people say that he can't be talking about Christians. Are we, in fact, sold as slaves to sin? Well, the Bible says that the the power of sin has been broken. Remember a few weeks ago when we cited the song by Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan's famous song, you gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. We all serve somebody. And uh, we get to choose, is the beauty, is we can choose the devil or we can choose the Lord. But the trouble is, there's sin in us. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He goes on, I don't understand what I do. For For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. And by the way, a part of this is the word ego. Ego means the self. He goes on. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, in my ego, myself. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do, I I, I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. So, did you get that? He says, first of all, let's start with my mind. I know what is right to do, but I find that in my own strength, I I, I don't perform what I know what is right to do. That's my intellect. And then he says, and my will, I, I want to do what's right. But I find that even though I want to do what's right, I don't do it. This is Ovid, the Roman poet, not a Christian. He said, I see and I approve the better course, but I follow the worse one. Why? Why? Here's someone, he just recognized that in himself. There's, a, there's sin within me that seduces me to do what I know is wrong. What is it inside of me? The Bible says the ego, myself, or my flesh, or what is sometimes called indwelling sin, it, it, it's in, in me. The sin within me seduces me to do what I know to be wrong. The sin within me opposes me even when I desire to do what is good. And the sin within poisons and imprisons my mind. It's a powerful, powerful force. So here's the struggle. The law is spiritual, but I am both flesh and spirit. I want to do what's right, but I find myself doing what I know is wrong I desire to do good, but I tend not to follow through on my desires to do good. I do not want to do evil, but I keep doing it anyway. And I can even envision myself delighting in God's law. But I find there's rebellion within my heart. A man whose last name is Dichan, he wrote this. I might read it twice just so you get a good sense of it. The Apostle Paul was amazed that he found himself practicing the very things he hated. His problem, remember, was not a lack of knowledge, for he knew the right. His difficulty did not result in his will, for he earnestly longed to do what God wanted. Nor could he place the blame for his enigma at the door of his emotions, for he found pleasure in God's law and he hated sin. He therefore concluded that his true self, his ego, was being acted upon by some inner force that has become part of his humanity. He retained the sinful nature he had inherited from Adam. This sin nature was neither removed nor changed when he became a Christian. It's still there. What you know doesn't change it. Your emotions don't change it. Your willpower is not enough to change it. Um, Martin Luther, the, 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 of course, the one who began the Lutheran Church, he was an Augustinian monk, a Roman Catholic monk, and he had a very tender conscience, so much so that he would go for hours a day and confess his sins to his confessor, Father Staupitz, so much so that Staupitz would say to him, Martin, go out and sin. But Martin Luther could never get a sense that he, that he, that he had gotten to the base, the bottom of his sins. He saw his sin nature. And then one day when Martin Luther was reading Romans and he came across that line, we are justified by faith, not by the works of the law. He was liberated. It was his salvation. And now look what's happened to good things because of Martin Luther. He realized he was in bondage because he could not get away from the sense of his own sin until he realized Jesus paid it all, all for him. You see, one of the implications of this is that one of the most important things we as human beings can come to is is told to us by that song. It's me. It's me. It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my mother, not my father. It's not the society, not my environment. It's not my friends, not my peers, not the ads on television. You know, it's me. It's me. And there's something about the acknowledgement of our own sin with with a refusal to blame shift that's extremely precious to God. Extremely. In fact, the Bible says, God will never reject anyone of a humble and contrite heart. Someone who's honest enough to look at your own sin, uh, humble enough to realize you cannot solve the problem yourself, especially with laws, and you bow your head before the God whose love is unconditional and who has made a way for all our sins to be paid by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what's called amazing grace, or wonderful love of Jesus. Well, what can we learn? Here's what David Jeremiah, a pastor in California, said, between what the law demands and what the flesh can produce, there is a great chasm. Between the the demands of God, what are the demands of God? If I wanted to state the demands of God very simply, it's this. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Where did I get that line from? Jesus. Those are his words. He said to us, this is what God requires. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if I could add a verse to the Bible, I would say right after that, good luck, turkeys. I mean, we don't have a prayer. Our own righteousness won't cut it. It never has, never will. So um, the believer's struggle with sin is, is, is confusing. It's, it's depressing. We, we want badly to please God, but we find ourselves instead choosing sin. We make good resolutions, but we don't tend to fulfill them for very long at all. You see, righteousness by means of religion, and I say religion has three categories to it. Rights, religious rights, that means going to church, being baptized, partaking of communion. Rights, rules, the do's and the don'ts, and rigors, how you sacrifice yourself for God. Those are all facets of all religions. Rights, rules, and rigors. Righteousness, using those three things, does not work. That's what Paul is trying to say. And in the long haul, it may well make matters worse. Why? Because those laws will stimulate sin, and besides, if you succeed in keeping them, you will become a self-righteous prude. And there's nothing much worse than somebody who thinks they're a whole lot better than everybody else. That's the worst thing you could become. You don't want to ever become that. That's for sure. So, um, Eugene Peterson, he wrote the, the paraphrase called "The Message." This is how he translates that. I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I cannot do it. This passage demonstrates the inadequacy of of knowledge. It is not having more Bible knowledge that will make you a better Christian. In fact, during the time when President Clinton was having his problems, Someone in the New York Times wrote an article entitled, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. And as you know, all dumb things aren't doing, done by dumb people. Many dumb things are done by very, very intelligent people. So smarts is not the answer to it. And, and the passage also demonstrates the inadequacy of human resolutions. You, to resolve to do something is a far, far thing from actually doing it. Because of a weakness of our will. The passage demonstrates the limitations of human diagnosis. Just to know what's wrong, just to be be able to doctor the problem, doesn't mean you you can solve the problem. It shows the inadequacy of human strength. So, where does it leave us? That's where the passage ends. Verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Ah, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And now he's going to bring us to chapter 8 which is the answer to the whole dilemma. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. for The law of the spirit of life has overcome the law of death. For what the law could not do, Jesus has done. Now it's going to talk about how it is that we can live a life in the power of God's spirit inside of us. That's the answer. He begins, as you can see, with an exclamation. I'm a mess. And then he has a question. Who will help me? Then he makes a statement. Oh, thanks be to God. And then he makes a conclusion. That's where help comes from. Tony Evans, the pastor I love down in Dallas, he wrote this. All throughout this chapter, Paul has been struggling to pull himself out of his inner war. But as if battling quicksand, he found the more he struggled, the deeper he sank. The power of positive thinking did nothing for him until he lifted his eyes to the only one who could rescue him. His situation was hopeless. Jesus lifted Paul out of the muck and mire. There's the answer consider AA. I know a bit about AA. Where does it all start? Here are people who are gripped by by alcohol and they get to the place with the first step. And I I sometimes call it the first step in the other 11, because once you get this first one, you got it. You're way on your road. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Once you honestly say that, and you really believe that, and you've hit bottom, and you've refused to shift blame to anyone else, oh, there is hope. There's incredible hope for you. And so, in conclusion, first of all, beware. A very common misdiagnosis of the problem. Well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. We like to say that. No. Or, well, more laws will solve the problem. Or the problem is, is an evil environment. Or the culture's lousy. Or it's Hollywood or somewhere else. Maybe Washington, D.C. No. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, Listen. There's nothing outside of you that can defile you. He says, because defilement does not come from outside in. It comes from the inside out. What we try to do so often is clean up the environment and we'll clean up people's lives. It doesn't work. You start with the heart. And then the environment changes as a result. Beware. Beware of righteousness by rules and regulations and And rigors and rites and all the things that religions say are the answer because they are not. Don't be destroyed. Don't be destroyed by the frequency and the intensity of the battle with sin. Don't give up. I saw a bumper sticker once. It said, make life a little easier with Jesus. And I went, no, that's not true. It doesn't become easier. Sometimes the battle becomes more intense. It's more difficult in some ways. It doesn't become easier. This is C.S. Lewis. What a brilliant statement. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. It's the opposite of what we think. But these are the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We have the benefit of awakening every day with a brand new start because God's mercies are new every morning and he is faithful. And don't ever put people on a pedestal, because there's only one who belongs on a pedestal. All of us will fail you, only Jesus. Well, I end with a story from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of the Preachers. He told the story of a a duke that once visited a galley ship. And the galley ship was full of uh, criminals who had committed various crimes. And as he passed the crew of criminals, he asked several of them, what their offenses were. Almost every man claimed he was innocent. They laid the blame on someone else or accused the judge of yielding to bribery. One young fellow, however, spoke out, Sir, I deserve to be here. I stole some money. No one is at fault but myself. I'm guilty. Upon hearing this, the duke seized him by the shoulder and shouted, You scoundrel, you! What are you doing here with all these honest men? Get out of their company at once. And he was set at liberty while the rest of them stayed with their chains. What was the key? You get out of here. You ruin these, all these innocent people here. He was the only one honest enough to tell the truth. And what was the result? Liberty. Because of the wonderful grace. Of Jesus we got to end there